6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 15 and 16. Peter cries in Acts 2, verse 14, Ye men of Judah. And he says again a couple of verses later, Ye men of Israel. And uh, in, before the chapter's over, he says, All the house of Israel. So the point I want to make, this idea that somehow there's ten tribes lost is a very popular myth, but it happens to fly in the face of, of uh, the biblical record. So those of you that are serious about the Scripture, I want to make you sensitive to that. And uh, at the same time, there's another reason I want to get into this. Uh, that's uh, By the way, the, in the end times... It's very emphasized they're going to be regathered as one in Isaiah 36 and 37, the dry bones and so forth. At the same time, you should recognize in Romans chapter 9, it emphasizes that uh, the physical descendants of Israel are not the ones to whom the promises were made. It's to the faithful subset of those. But one another thing that derives from this, and I won't spend a lot of time on it tonight, but I want to alert you to the possibility. This idea of the lost ten tribes of Israel, strangely enough, becomes the basis for anti-Semitism. It's not obvious how you get to that link. I won't take the time now to just recognize that when you start talking about the lost ten tribes and so forth, you'll discover, interestingly enough, it leads to various forms of British Israelism and other forms of anti-Semitic doctrines. And because it denies the Jewish people their proper place in the plan of God. And let's remember that Genesis 12, verse 3, has never been has been ever been repealed. I'll bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee and so on. And, of course, there is a, an event that is going to be used by God, the God of Abraham, Itzhak, and Yaakov, to bring them together in the faith, and that's the invasion in the Middle East by Magog and his band, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And let's remember how germane this is. We should recognize every Christmas when we, work, when we uh, uh, celebrate the Lord's birth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Gabriel promises Mary that her son David will assume the throne of David. And the throne of David was over both houses of Israel. No lost tribes there. So, um, But there's another issue here I want to get into that is undergirding this whole historical area that we're in the divided kingdom and following, and that's the cost of idolatry. We probably have noticed that uh, all the way through, we have uh, uh, noticed that certain kings, they, they allowed the worship of idols. And by the way, I've tried to emphasize, it's not that they worshipped idols instead of God. They did, but, but the, even worshipping idols in, in addition to God didn't count. See, God wants to be, he wants to be number one on a list of one. You see, not a, number one on a list of whatever. And so, um, where did idolatry begin? It may surprise you, if you're going to study idolatry, where it first begins. And it's actually hidden behind a mistranslation in Genesis 4, verse 26. At the end of chapter 4, it says, And to Seth, to him also was born a son. Remember, we had Cain and Abel. 
Cain kills Abel. Eve has another son by the name of Seth. Seth has a son by the name of Enosh. And the way it reads in your English Bible, it says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That sounds pretty good, except it's mistranslated. And many scholars don't realize this unless they've done a little bit of homework. In the Targum of Onkelos, which in the Hebrew world is considered the translation, it's an ancient one, what it actually is translated is they desisted from praying in the name of God, is what the Hebrew actually says. And uh, in the Targum of Jonathan, they surnamed their idols in the name of God. In the Hebrew, it happens in one of these, it's, un, it's a well-known, but, uh, a mis, uh, trans, tra, uh, translation problem, but many casual readers of the Bible, you know, aren't, have, don't dig behind this, is that, uh, this is where idolatry really began, from Enosh. There are people that have doctrines that say Seth were the good guys and the Cainites were the bad guys. Uh, no, it's not that simple. Cain mentioned, uh, 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 labeled all his children after, after El, the God, the God of the Bible. Yes, he killed his brother, but from that point on, he, he walked a, a good line, apparently. But uh, Seth's son was bad news. And uh, Maimonides, who was the most venerated of the, uh, the, uh, uh, in the rabbinical community, uh, his commentary on the Mishnah, pub- published in uh, 1168, ascribes the origin of idolatry the days of Enosh. And so do all the other, Kimchi, Rashi, and some of the other rabbinical, and, and Jerome in the early church. And so this, this fountain of idolatry gets its center in Babel under Nimrod, which becomes Babylon. And we'll, all through the scripture, you'll discover that all forms of idolatry can trace their roots back to Babylon. And, uh, that is going to have, that's going to have a profound implication even in the end times. You're going to want to understand that as we go for, uh, forward. Now there's something about what, what, what really is idolatry and, uh, Idolatry consists in revering the created thing rather than the creator. And uh, whether it's worship of the sun, the moon, stars, whatever, all these things are in effect become idioms in, in the place of demons. On the one hand, an idol is nothing, and the scripture makes that very clear, wood, stone, whatever. And yet the worship of them are also create supernatural entries for the demonic realm. And you need to understand that. And uh, so... Seeking answers from these things is something that God abhors. Should get our answers from Him. Psalm ninety-six five says, "All the all the gods of the nations are idols." And of course, uh, uh, John in his first epistle, and also Paul in his first Corinthian letter, says, "Little children, keep yourself from idols." So it's an admonition in the Christian world too. And, and Paul goes on to explain in Colossians three verse five and First Corinthians five ten that covetous is idolatry. One reason I want to emphasize that is because there is a discovery that I think is useful. There's a, a passage of about four verses in both Psalm 115 and Psalm 135. I've just extracted the key line of each of those, the fourth of the four, ver- the four verse segments. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. One of the strange things that the Scripture teaches us, and we can also observe it, is that we become like the gods we worship. And that can be a very frightening thing. Um, the Scriptures, they, they that make them are like unto them, and so is everyone that trusts them. You trust in those idols, you'll become like the idol. And is the, is the idol false and empty? Then you'll become false and empty. Is the world harsh? materialistic, 
and unforgiving? Indeed. If you worship the world, you'll become harsh, materialistic, and unforgiving. This, this read came home to me in one of our early visits to Egypt. We'd left Cairo on the bus and we're going down some uh, roads to where we were heading, but went by some villages. And as we drove by the villages, we were along the road. There seemed to be a sort of a concrete revetment full of water behind the village. And then as we looked at it more closely, we realized it wasn't concrete revetment. It was paper and trash that made it look white, light. And the water was gray. It was sewage. When we went to, we'd been to the Cairo Museum, which is really worth seeing. It'd take you weeks to go through the whole thing. It's gigantic. But you can't help but realize that here was a culture that was devoted to death. Mummification, and they, they, they were really into death. And they worshipped all kinds of idols. But you know what was the most venerated of their various animals and things they worshipped? The scarab. You can any jewelry store, you can buy a little scarab as a memento of your visit to Egypt, because it was the venerated well what a scarab is is a dung beetle. And if animal feces fall on the side of the road, very quickly these little dung beetles seem to come out of nowhere. And because they seem to come out of nowhere, they were venerated as a symbol of creation. And out of that culture, that, that scarab became the, excuse the expression, top of the heap, I guess. Um, But as, as we were driving, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Because see, this was not a third world country. This was a country that once ruled the world. That of course worshipped death and worshipped the dung beetle. And you realize that the bulk of that population today lives on a dung heap, in a very literal sense. Very disturbing. We become like the gods we worship. And that's another reason we worship Christ. Because you will become like the one you worship. You want to worship the world? You want to worship some ideology that's empty and vacant? Be careful. Or do you want to worship Christ? Because if you worship Christ, you become like Him. Anyway, there are some lessons from the northern kingdom I'd like to get into a little bit. We've, we've talked about the kings, we'll talk about some more, but their standing army under Jeroboam II, forthcoming, had recovered all the territory previously lost. They enjoyed unparalleled material prosperity. Because of all the denigrating remarks in the scripture that emphasize the spiritual side, we lose sight of the fact they materially were very, very successful. From their point of view, it was the best of times. But God had a different kind of view. See, they'd exchanged their loyalty to their heritage for idol worship. And what was the result of that idol worship? The lowest form of immorality, social injustice, violent crime, religious hypocrisy, political rebellion, selfish arrogance, spiritual ingratitude, and on it goes. And there'll be in, in the notes that you'll get with the date. There are, are um, uh, references behind all of these. So, see, it, it, you, when you study this, you can't help but think 
of the opening line to Charles Dickens' famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. He says it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. In this case, in their minds, it was the best of times, but in God's eyes, it was the worst of times. And what does God do? He raises up a prophet from Judah in the southern kingdom to raise up a message, to bring, to raise up and come up there and bring them a message that although a loving and caring God had provided their abundance and their prosperity, their sin, disloyalty, and abandonment of him will force him to vindicate his justice with judgment. Whenever I see that, I'm always reminded of Thomas Jefferson's famous remark. He says, I tremble for my country when I realize that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. See, God sends Hosea to tell them God is going to use their enemies as his instrument of judgment, and shortly they'll be history. God's remedy is to use their enemies to wipe them out. He sends Hosea up there with that message. You study Hosea chapter 4 to 14. It's astonishing to see how parallel it is to America. Is there a parallel to our country? Well, our stock indexes in general have reached unprecedented highs. The people are buying their what? Third and fourth cars. Almost every home has at least one computer. It's hard to find anyone without a cellular phone going out of his ear. Fuel costs less than the bottle of water that we buy. It's the best of times in many ways. You can list a lot of indicators that may, we feel pretty good. But let's take a look at, let's try to put God's glasses on. Take a look through us. Homosexual is just an alternative lifestyle. That's an indicator he uses all through the scripture to indicate the depravity of a culture. We murder babies that are socially inconvenient. Even the ancient pagan nations considered a, a, abortion a capital crime because they knew their prosperity depended on the population growth. And if somebody killed a baby, they, it was, they, they took issue with that. I'm not talking about the, they also had infant worship, uh, 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 offerings. That's a different issue. It was fascinating me to discover that the ancient cultures considered ab- 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 uh, abortions as an abomination. We changed marriage partners like a fashion statement. We abandoned the sanctity of commitments in all of our relationships, not just our marriages, but in our business relationships. Now, God rebuked Israel for their brutality, their murder, and their warfare. Well, we've had Waco, Columbine, make the list. New York City has more crimes than England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Switzerland, Spain, Sweden, the Netherlands, Norway, and Denmark combined. Can you imagine? And, of course, we also have had our Vietnam and Kosovo and what have you. We should have been sending Bibles, not bullets and bombs. Missionaries, not missiles. See, our whole culture has disconnected character from destiny. He recently had president for two terms that you wouldn't trust to drive home your babysitter. Immorality and deceit have become to, have come to characterize some of the highest offices in our nation as well. Our politics have condoned and covered up more murders than we dare list. Our public enterprise has been prostituted for the convenience of the elite. Our entertainments celebrate adultery, fornication, violence, aberrant sexual practices, and every imaginable form of evil. We just gave, what, six Academy Awards to a musical that celebrates prostitution and murder and outfoxing the courts with injustice. We've become the primary exporters of everything God abhors. So from his point of view, it's indeed the worst of times. So... One of the questions that lurks in the back of our mind, is it too late? What can we, you and me, do about it? 
Well, it's interesting. There's one exception in the Scripture, one exception in history that I know of. That's Jonah and Nineveh. Nineveh was the pagan capital of the entire world, and God had declared it was 40 days from destruction, 40 days from what you and I might call ground zero. And Jonah was called to go minister to the enemy. And most of you realize he he really wasn't too excited about the assignment until God explained it to him a little more clearly. And he went, when he finally did go there, he didn't have a market-researched, user-friendly message. He was hoping they wouldn't accept his message. He wanted them judged. Why? Because he was a patriot. He knew that Nineveh was going to be ultimately the, the enemy of his country, so he's hoping that God would wipe him out. He just went through town and said, 40 days and you get yours, in effect. 40 days and comes destruction. He didn't tell them to repent. He just announced that they were in judgment. One of the most amazing miracles in the Old Testament is not the whale and all that business. The most amazing miracle in the Old Testament is that the king, on spec, repented. The pagan capital of the world. Hearing the message, reason that just maybe, if God is a God of mercy, he just might change his mind if we repent. He wasn't responding like you might to John the Baptist, who preached repentance. John didn't preach repentance, to, but at least you can't tell that from the text. But the, on spec, the king reasoned that he might be. And so they, from the king on down, they repented, and it was averted. And that was all in less than 40 days, 40 days from ground zero. The capital of the world repented. And were given a whole other century. And once again, they, de- they, they, they decayed, and Nahum was raised up to speech, and they didn't take it that time, they got wiped out. And of course, the, the, the key verse and uh, is, is uh, that when God appears to Solomon, he gives him a commitment. It says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. If they'll do those three things, God says, I'll do four things. They shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. If they do those four things, I'll do three things. Then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now the purists will say that was given to Solomon on behalf of Israel, and that's certainly true in a denotative sense, but we also worship a God that changes not. He's announcing a principle. If my people are called by my name, how many of you are God's people? How many of you are called by God's name? See, if you're an undercover Christian and the, and the family doesn't know or the nations, the, the neighbors don't suspect, I'm not if, you're, if my people who are called by name shall do these four things, humble themselves, we know how to do that. Pray, we know how to do that. We may not do it enough. Humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Now that's tougher. Do we really know how to seek his face? That's a whole other thing, by the way. But if they'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face, ah, here's the rub, and turn from their wicked ways. You know, it's interesting, this isn't addressed to the Congress, the Senate. This isn't addressed to the media. This isn't addressed to the pagans in our culture. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Praise God. Now, one of the things that I often don't talk about, I often deliver this kind of a message to a group, but something I don't get into very much. You know, um, the northern kingdom did not repent. 
to Hosea's message. He went up there and gave him that message, Hosea 4 through 14, you can read it. They were suddenly destroyed. You know, it bothers me because Isaiah 55, 11 has a, another principle that everyone likes to quote, but they never apply it. God says, so my word, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now you can argue that Hosea's message came to them. They didn't repent. God was thus justified in destroying them. That's one argument. It's hard to, hard to quarrel with that. But there's another sense that bothers me. God gave Hosea a message to the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom did not repent. God says, it shall prosper in the thing that whereunto I sent it. And the thought ran through my mind one morning when I got up, was preparing some of this. Is it possible that God's message through Hosea to the northern kingdom was God's intention for you and I? Is it possible that this message of repentance will prosper in the thing whereunto he said it? Is it possible that America may repent? Is it possible that God may send us a revival to avert the destruction that's way overdue for this country? I think it's God's preference for America to continue to be a beachhead for the gospel to a hurting world. And what's in the way are, is not the liberal media, it is not the pagan leadership, what have you, fill in the blanks. What's in the way is the body of Christ. It's our sin. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and guess what? Heal their land. We need a revival in this country. It needs to begin with us personally. And uh, we need to pray for it every day if we care anything for our children and grandchildren. But uh, anyway, final challenge. See, we all know without him we can't do this, right? But without us, without us he won't. Without him, we can't. Without us, he won't. So, with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you blessed us with your word and brought us together to review these things. But, Father, we would ask that through your Holy Spirit that you would help us learn the lessons that your people didn't learn at first. Oh, Father, we come before your throne seeking your heart, Father. We do understand that you're a God who calls us to obedience. And while you've removed from us the burden of the law, you have given us your amazing grace and with these great gifts come even greater responsibilities. We thank you, Father, for this dismal record of, of the contagion of sin, the contagion of compromise, the, how it gets passed on generation after generation. Oh, Father, we thank you for this record. We pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, 
You would help us appropriate it to our own lives. Help us, Father, to see our lives, not in material terms or physical terms, but in spiritual terms. Help us to understand the idolatry that pervades our own existence. For we do understand that covetousness is idolatry. And, oh, Father, our sins are so many. And they weigh more heavily because of the blessings you've given us. How without excuse we are. Our sins of ingratitude. Our sins of presumption. Oh, how we presume upon you, Father. Forgive us. Help us, Father, to walk moment by moment. In not just an awareness of you, but in a commitment to you, Father. Help us, Father, to take every thought captive. Help us, Father, to walk step by step where you are leading us and not where we would go on our own. We ask that, Father, that we might be pleasing in your sight. We ask that, Father, that we might grow in the knowledge and awareness and comprehension of the extremes that you've gone to on our behalf and help us to more fully understand that ultimate Son of David, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we we do ask that you would receive us, take us, all that we are without reservation. And help us, Father, to be effective stewards of the opportunities you've given us. Help us, Father, to do it without compromise. Help us, Father, to do it in a manner that will please you as we do commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.